Who's ready for part four? I, tr- I trust you guys have been enjoying this series. I know I have. What's the consensus? Are we having a good time with the series? Yeah. We're learning a lot, aren't we? In the series, we've been taking a look at these verses that have become cliches. And these are stereotypically feel-good verses, right? The kind that we stick onto merchandise such as coffee mugs. And these verses that we are using have become so overused to the point that we know them, but they may not necessarily carry the weight that they should, carry the meaning that they should. And we've been misusing them because we've been taking them out of context. And I would even go as far as to say that some of these verses that we have been looking at that are these cliche verses have become so overused that they become annoying to hear. Am I wrong in saying that? I think some of these verses, when we hear them, we kind of just roll our eyes. Yeah, yeah, okay. And that's a problem. We shouldn't be rolling our eyes at scripture. And the verse we're looking at this morning is also a very popular one. It is one that we tend to claim as a personal promise, and it might even be one that when you do hear, you do kind of roll your eyes at it because it's been so used. And the verse we're looking at is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know this one? You might have heard it in conversation. Somewhere along the lines, you've, you've seen it. Some translations say, I know the thoughts I have towards you. Now, as cliche as this is going to sound, this is actually one of my favorite verses. I know that's very cliche. And initially, when I had heard this verse, when, you know, I learned about it, I also understood it as a personal promise, focusing on it as a promise of his plans for my life. But eventually, I learned the context of this verse, and I understood it in a more well-rounded way. And so my hope this morning is that if this is one of your favorite verses as well, if this is one that you have quoted to people before, then I hope that at the end of this, you're going to understand what you are saying, that you're going to understand the context of this verse. So we're going to clarify it this morning in a message titled, Hope and a Future. Now, as you can see, I have my mug ready. And this is a mug that will definitely comfort me whenever I use it. Number one, because it's going to contain coffee. (laughs) The most important thing, it will have coffee. And that will make me happy. That's going to comfort me. But secondly, when I look at this verse, it makes me feel good. It comforts me. I, I like this verse. So I'll feel good about using it. And that's the trend we've seen with these verses, isn't it? These verses that are plastered onto coffee mugs, they make us feel good. They encourage us. When you, you feel his love. It's true. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem, though, is if that's all we're reading, is the feel-good stuff, that's... We're not reading scripture, right? The reason these, hey, you drink tea. It's the same. It's okay, not all of us can be perfect. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. 
There can't be enough coffee for everyone, right? So there's, there's tea for, for the others. That's okay. But the reason these verses become cliche and become misused is because our approach to Scripture might be a little bit flawed. Our approach to reading the Bible is either going to help us understand these verses correctly or it's going to fuel our misinterpretation. Now, there are four common mistakes that we made when we read the Bible. And these are all mistakes that we have either done in the past or we are still currently doing today. And we need to be aware of these mistakes so that we can correct them when we find ourselves doing them. Now, as I go over these mistakes, they're not going to be new to you. Over the past few weeks, we have heard this in some way or another. So listen, be aware, take note. And as I go over these mistakes, I think you'll pick up how this leads to cliche scripture, how this leads to coffee mug Christianity, and how it leads to us misunderstanding scripture. So here there are four common mistakes that we make when reading the Bible. Number one, we only read the books that we understand. We avoid the books that are confusing, the ones that are a little bit boring, or the ones that are uncomfortable. So we only read the books we understand. Secondly, we selectively interpret which verses to apply. That means that we go through scripture and we handpick, I like this one, I like that one, I don't like that one, I'll keep this one. So we selectively take verses out of scripture that we will apply, and if we don't like it, we push it aside, we don't look at it. The third mistake is we use isolated scripture, much like the verses that are plastered on merchandise. We isolate them. We don't understand the context. And the fourth mistake is that we don't understand the history of the Bible. We don't take time to understand what was happening historically when that book was written. So we don't understand the historical context of Scripture. And these four mistakes lead us to coffee mug Christianity. It's what we've been seeing throughout the series that this approach is dangerous This approach can harm our understanding of the scripture and ultimately harm our understanding of who God is, what he is actually promising to do, and how we should be responding to him. See, if we are living in coffee mug Christianity, then we run the risk of falling into these three dangers. Number one, we become pros at reciting scripture. Now understand that being able to recite verses is not a bad thing. But it does become a danger when those verses merely become memory verses. It's something that we can just say quickly. It becomes dangerous because it becomes head knowledge and not heart knowledge. We can recite these verses on command like a parrot. But have you ever asked the parrot to explain what they just said? (laughs) Has anyone had a conversation with a parrot where they say something and you're like, you know what, you're right. Tell me more. They can't. They've learned to repeat something, and that's it. They can't explain it. So when we fall into this danger of just reciting scripture, that's pretty much all we do, is we've learned to repeat this verse. And we've developed this collection of memory verses. And we can have competitions with each other. Who can say it the fastest? But... That's as far as it goes. 
The depth of that verse, the meaning, the context is all lost and they just become words. The second danger is we fall into the trap of feel-good Christianity. Like I said, these verses we've been looking at, they make us feel good. They bring us comfort. And that's pretty much all the scriptures we find on merchandise, is feel-good scripture. Stuff that sounds positive, that's encouraging. I don't know about you, but I haven't come across mugs with verses on them that talk about how we are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. I haven't come across a mug that says that we are to deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily. And although this one would be a decent one to put on a mug, I haven't seen one that says that if you are lukewarm in your faith, if you are neither hot nor cold, God will spit you out of his mouth. And that's the nice translation. Why is it that we stick to these nice sounding verses and we avoid the ones that challenge us? We do this because we like our comfort. We like a faith that feels good. It's all love and rainbows. Makes me feel capable of anything. It promises me this wonderful future. It fills me with joy. The problem is that we like the sweet and encouraging rather than the challenging and refining. So we stick to the verses that make us feel good and we just get caught up in feel-good Christianity. And then the third danger is that we take things out of context. See, when we kind of stick to this feel-good Christianity, what we're doing is we're making it about ourselves. And when we do that, it's very easy to take scripture out of context and use it however it applies to us to our comfort. And the purpose of this series has been to take these verses and place them back within their context so that we can understand them correctly. Because reading verses in isolation is a guaranteed way to gain a twisted interpretation of scripture and then in turn a misinterpretation of God. When we remove it out of context, we allow ourselves to give it whatever meaning we want because we have removed its original meaning. And we once again end up with feel-good Christianity because I am making it say what I want it to say. I am making it say what makes me feel comfortable. And our Bible knowledge, if this is how we're approaching scripture, if these are the dangers we're falling into, then our Bible knowledge just becomes repeating scripture like parrots, not giving any thought to what it is that we're actually saying. Or we are isolating the parts that we like and we leave out the rest. But this doesn't help us learn about God's character, about what our salvation means, about how we are to live our lives in a way that honors God or how we are to respond when life gets tough. Which means that we are then believing in a God that we don't actually know. Or we are choosing what to accept about him and choosing what to reject about him. And that's a problem. That's not faith. That's not true belief. So we need to become aware of these dangers and these mistakes. And when we are aware of it, as we look at scripture, like we're going to look at today's verse, we then need to ask ourselves some questions. So this morning, as we look at Jeremiah 29, 11, we need to ask ourselves, who is God speaking to? What was happening when this was written? And does this apply to us today? 
Answering these questions will help us put the verse back in its place so we can understand its context. And once we understand the context, we can see what we can learn. So before I answer these questions, I first want to briefly talk about how we commonly misinterpret this verse. So we're going to look at the problem, then we're going to ask and answer the questions. I said earlier that this is a verse that we commonly take as a personal promise. That's the main misinterpretation of this. God has a great plan for me. It's all mapped out and God will direct me in this perfect plan. We read it and we understand God knows his plans for my life. And I can take comfort in the promise that those plans are to prosper me, not to harm me. Plans that guarantee me a wonderful and a hopeful future. We often see this kind of application of this verse around graduation time. It's commonly used to comfort graduates that there is a plan for their future, that they will be prosperous. See, we read this and we understand there are only good things in store for me. God's plans for me are good. Others will go a little bit further and add to that interpretation that this verse is a promise of financial prosperity, health, and well-being. Because we are God's children, we can expect good things. In fact, we are entitled to them. Having this view often results in people believing that if you are not experiencing prosperity or experiencing healing and breakthrough, well, then you must have a problem with your faith. You must be lacking in faith. Because God won't withhold prosperity and health and wealth from his people, right? Can you see how these interpretations are a problem? We turn Jeremiah 29, 11 into a me-centered verse. It's all about what God can do for me. Also, in viewing it as God's plans won't harm me, that his plans are for prosperity for my life, then when we don't experience it, not only do we feel bad that maybe we're doing something wrong, that our faith is lacking, but it can also lead us to question God, to doubt him. But the truth is, this verse is not actually about you. And God isn't saying that your future is going to be perfect. So let's zoom out from verse 11 and look at this properly. The first question we're answering is, who was God talking to? And I just said it's not about you. When we read this verse in isolation, just verse 11, it is easy to understand that the you God is talking to as being you, the reader. However, God was not talking to us here. The you that God was talking to wasn't even Jeremiah himself. It wasn't to a specific individual. He was talking to the Israelites, which were being held in captivity. And how do we know this? Just go up a few verses. Chapter 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We go down a few more verses to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. There you go, question one, answered, simple. All you had to do was go back a bit. God was addressing the Israelites in captivity through Jeremiah. He was addressing them through, during a time 
where they were facing the consequences of their failure to obey God. And we'll address that later on, but we need to just keep that in mind. So these opening verses tell us who God was speaking to. But now we have to wonder, why was God sending them this message? Why were they in exile? What exactly was going on? So we ask, what was happening when this was written? Based on verse 1, we know that this is a letter that Jeremiah sent to those who were in exile in Babylon. And this letter contained a message from God to the Israelites regarding their captivity. So the context here is that this is a message to people who were being held captive in a foreign land. And we're going to see that this message is giving them instructions on how they are to live out their time in exile. So we're going to read a nice piece of scripture now. Really get the context, get the meat of this. We're going to read verses 5 to 14, which says, Build houses and settle down. That's the opening statement of his message to his people in exile. How would you feel if you were in captivity and that's the first thing God says to you? Build houses and settle down. Comforting, right? Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not let the dreams you encourage them to have. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. That's a lot of information. But I don't know how you feel, keeping in mind who this was written to. But I wouldn't feel particularly comforted or feel good after receiving that message. As someone who's been taken into exile, I'm now in captivity, and God tells me this. I'm sorry, what? Essentially, God is saying that they must make the most and make the best of this sucky situation. On top of that, he's saying, settle in, guys. It's going to be a while. How would this message make you feel? What would your response to God be? Excuse me, Lord, what? You, you want me to make my home here. I've just been taken away from my home. I am now being held captive in a foreign land and you want me to build a life here. You want me to build a home, to work, to raise a family, to peacefully build a life amongst my enemies, to support the economy of this country, and then on top of that, you're telling me it's going to be 70 years before you do something about this. 
It's gonna be 70 years before you come get us out of here. Do you realize that that means that most of us are not leaving? 70 years, chances are most of the people who got taken into exile died there. And after all that unpleasant news, because let's be honest, in that moment that's not what you wanna hear, after all that unpleasant news, God says, I have a plan. And these plans are not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. But it's very difficult to see the hope in the situation, isn't it? Did you take note that just before God said how long they were going to be there for, he, he said to not be deceived by the prophets and diviners among them. What is that doing there? How does that fit into this message? The reason that he says this is because earlier in chapter 28, there was a prophet declaring that God was going to save them a lot sooner. See, we have to zoom out even further now. Chapter 28, verse 10 to 11 says, Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Hananiah, a prophet, is declaring that he has heard from the Lord that those who were taken captive to Babylon will only be there for two years. And then God would set them free and bring them back to Israel. That's a little bit more comforting, right? Two years, I can do that. That's manageable. But listen to what Jeremiah says to him a few verses later in verses 15 to 17. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. But you make this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Knowing about Hananiah's false prophecy is important in understanding God's words in Jeremiah chapter 29. Because now we know that God had to do some damage control. He had to denounce this false prophecy and he needed to bring truth. I also just want to point out something here regarding what we're seeing happen. Have you noticed that when we enter difficult times, our tendency is to respond with, God will get me out of this quickly. Soon, in the name of Jesus, this will be over. We refuse to believe that maybe this difficult situation that we are in could be for an extended period of time. There is this belief that God will do it now and we claim it as faith, but maybe it's just a misconception that God will shield us from every bad thing in our lives. The Israelites wanted their captivity to end soon. That's fine. That's how we respond to difficulty. We want it to be over. Now between Hananiah's message and Jeremiah's, we can all agree that we would rather believe Hananiah. We would rather believe that God was going to come and take them out of captivity within two years. I mean, we would probably still complain two years is a long time, but that's manageable compared to 70. And that was something that was happening back then, but it's still true today. 
We believe those who say things that suit us, even if it's not the truth. We believe it because it satisfies us. Rather than being willing to hear the hard truths, we choose to change the message to fit us rather than allowing the message to change us. I'm gonna say that again. Rather than being willing to hear the hard truths, we choose to change the message to fit us instead of allowing the message to change us. Hananiah gave false hope to the people with a false prophecy, and he faced the consequences of his deception. Now, if this passage of scripture isn't a strong warning to false prophets and a warning to us to be careful who we listen to, then I don't know what is. So let that be a lesson from the story. Be careful who you listen to. Don't just listen to something because it tickles your ears. Listen to truth, even when it's hard to accept. So now that we know who God was talking to, and we have a better understanding of what was going on historically, and knowing more or less what was happening when this was written, We are better equipped to understand what verse 11 says. The people that Jeremiah was writing to were probably questioning whether God cared about them, wondering if God had abandoned them, and possibly even thinking that God's thoughts towards them were evil. So God clarifies these misconceptions by giving them a plan of action and then reassuring them that his thoughts toward them are good that his plans were not to harm them, but to prosper them, that he wants them to thrive. And then he goes on to give them the key to living in this good plan. Verse 12 to 14, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. Now we know the Israelites had been taken captive to Babylon, but we also need to know that the reason they found themselves in the situation is because they had turned their backs on God. It wasn't just a consequence of war that they were taken out. It was a punishment. In the previous chapters of Jeremiah, we read his warnings to Israel. They had broken their covenant with God. They had adopted the worship of Canaanite gods. They were practicing idolatry. They were doing other practices which God had not commanded. The leaders had become so corrupt that it had led to social injustices. It was a mess. And Jeremiah, being sent by God, had warned them that if they do not correct this behavior, if they do not stop and return to God, God would punish them. In chapter 7, Jeremiah gave them a message where in one of the verses, verse 15, God warns them, I will thrust you from my presence. That's a harsh thing to say. I will thrust you from my presence. Now, I encourage you to take some time later today or this week to read chapter 7, just to give you an understanding of how bad things had gotten. It will show you the distance that they had put between themselves and God. But now, knowing this, when we fast forward to chapter 29, verses 11 to 14, they make more sense now. The Israelites had brought this punishment upon themselves by turning away from God. 
They weren't in his presence anymore. And now God was calling them back to him. And through this, we see two attributes of God's character. God is just, but God is also gracious. He warned Israel to stop their sinful ways, to stop their disobedience. They didn't. And so they faced the consequences of their sin and they were punished. God is just. But in their punishment, God calls them to repent, to seek him, to draw near to him because he has not given up on them. He is gracious. So they felt the wrath of God's judgment, but God was gracious enough to not leave them there, to not leave them alone. So now understanding all of this, knowing that Jeremiah 29, 11 was not written to us, we then have to ask, does this even apply to us then? And the simple answer is yes, because there are lessons we can learn from this verse, from what is going on here. And the first is that God's plans are good. Like we said, this verse is a promise to his people that his plans are good. Within context, his people are the Israelites. But Jesus came and he opened that door to all of us. There's no longer a separation between Jew and Gentile, which means that as believers, we are God's people. So that means that his plans for us are good. But it doesn't mean that we're going to have an easy life, that we're going to get everything he wants. Again, it was to his people, not to an individual. So again, it's to us, his people, not specifically that everything's gonna go our way. And the comfort of this promise is that even in difficult times, God is with us, he is in control, and he is going to help us through it. Even in the foreign land, we can have hope for a better future. But we also need to realize that that better future might not happen in our lifetime. Meaning that the breakthrough that we are trusting for might not happen for us. Like many of the Israelites who entered Babylon hoping to be free and return back home, many of them didn't get to see that happen. They lived out their life in Babylon and they died there. Does that mean that God lied to them about having good plans for them, about giving them a future? No, because God was talking about the bigger picture. That means that whether we see our breakthrough happen or not, we know that there is a much better future awaiting us in God's presence one day in eternity. That God has orchestrated this plan to allow us to have that future and it gives us hope in our struggles. So we can confidently say that yes, God's plans for us are good. But there's a requirement attached to this, to this plan. And that is that our hope and our future is found in Him. Remember, the Israelites found themselves in this terrible situation because of their own decisions. They had been warned, yet they chose to ignore the warnings and continue in their sin. And now they were facing the consequences. But God told them that if they call on Him, He will hear them. If they seek Him, they will find Him. See, the key to our hope and future is a relationship with God. 
Just like it was for the Israelites, our sins and our disobedience has consequences. But even in those consequences, God does not leave us. He does not forget us. He doesn't abandon us. God says, you brought this on yourself, but I'm still here. Even in the punishment, God is calling us back into a relationship with him. This story begins with God's judgment on his people for their disobedience, but it ends with hope by giving them the opportunity to change their ways. Our choices, our actions, they have consequences. There will be judgment, but there is hope in the grace that is given to us through Christ, and we are being called back into relationship with him. And like the Israelites, the choice is yours. And I hope that you are going to choose God's plan, his good plan, that you will call on him, that you will seek him wholeheartedly so that you can confidently take this verse and understand it, knowing that because you are a child of God, his plans for you are good. That you can look at this verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And you can look at it and be reminded that God's love for his people means that his plans for us are good. Let this verse remind us that God is just, but he is also gracious. Let it be a reminder that there won't always be an immediate escape or solution to our difficult situations. And let this verse remind us that we can't expect a perfect life, free from pain, disappointment, failure, or struggles, but that when those trials do come, we know who God is, and we know that we can be content in Him, having Him at our side, and that we know there is a future joy awaiting us, and that there is a future where everything will one day be as God intended it to be. And because of that, we can have hope. Amen? His plans for us are good. It might not seem like it when we're in our exile, when we are in our consequences. But when we look ahead at what he is actually doing, his plans for us are good. His plans are not to harm us. His plans are to prosper us, to give us hope and a future. So let's be careful to not turn our backs on God. Let's seek him, let's call on him, and let's live in that hope. Amen. Amen. Before we close in prayer, let's see who's taking home the mug today. Lucky number 10. <laughs> Finally, the ladies get something. <laughs> now, Mario, every time you use that mug, Remember, see it as a warning and a reminder of his grace for us. Amen. Amen. This was supposed to be the last one of the series, but we've added an extra one. So next week, 
come back for another coffee mug Christianity episode. I believe we're going to have a good time with that one and uh, in, enjoy the content of it. It is Ladies Month. Mm-hmm. So yes, the ladies got one, finally. <laughs> and uh, ladies, you're, you're going to want to be here next week. Drag your, your husbands along, the, the men in your life, bring them with, and we're going to have a blessed time next week in his presence. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life that is found in it, the encouragement that we can get from Scripture, Lord, but also the correction, the hard truths that we might not want to accept, but we need to. Father, I pray that as we read Scripture, we'll approach it with the right heart, that we will not take things out of context, but that we will strive to understand it the way that you have meant it, that we will learn the lessons that apply to us, Lord, and actually make the necessary changes in our lives. Father, we know that your plans for us are good, even in the challenges that we face in this life. I pray that when those hard times come, Lord, we won't turn away from you, but we will draw closer to you. We will seek you, we will call on you, and we will find comfort in your presence. So Father, as we go out this week, may we shine your light to the people around us. May we live in the truth of who you are and allow that joy that you have placed in our hearts to shine through. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, that you are just, but you are also gracious. We thank you for the grace that you have showed to us, Lord, and that you will continue to show us. But I also pray, Lord, that we will not abuse that grace, that we won't use it as an excuse to keep doing what we want to do, to keep doing sinful things or behaving in ways that are displeasing to you but that we will accept that grace and allow it to change us. So Father, we give you all honor and praise. We thank you for speaking to us, for challenging us, for molding us into who you created us to be and for loving us so much that you made a plan to have a relationship with us. So Father, may you bless us and keep us and may you continue to guide us every step of the way in the good times and bad, may we know that you're with us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed week and we'll see you next week.